the expectations that people have obviously affect their financial decisions. And I think, you know, that's where I feel incredibly lucky because the person who puts the most expectations on me is myself. And I've got those expectations under control and I'm, I'm really happy. And yeah, I, I do drive a 17 year old van, but I'm, I'm happy with that choice. And I get to pick my kids up from school and drop them off two days a week. And that's a choice that I've made. And I'm not saying it's the right choice. It's just a choice. And that's a great thing. If you're making informed choices, I think that's the key to feeling happier. But if you are trapped in that kind of position, you've got to do something about it. Would you love to make some changes in your life, like cutting down on work to get more free time or changes in your career, like taking some time off to do more study or develop new skills? but feel you can't because your finances constrain you. Or perhaps you feel trapped in a job you hate. And the main thing stopping you exploring alternatives is that it pays really, really well. Most of us have experienced at least one of these dilemmas, if not all three. So I invited Medics Money's Tommy Perkins back onto the podcast to talk about this. Tommy is a GP and talks about how his own journey of getting out of a huge amount of debt after university has shaped his thinking around money. And he shares some really practical advice about how we can take control of our finances and use them to give us options instead of limiting them. Anything we can do to give ourselves more control over our lives and careers is one step towards feeling calmer and finding happiness at work. So listen to this episode to find out why it might be more financially viable to wash your own car than to do some overtime. Why being better off financially is rarely about doing more work and quite often about doing less. And some simple strategies to take control of your finances and create a buffer which will make you feel less stressed and less anxious. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high stress, high stakes jobs. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. It's wonderful to have with me back on the podcast, Dr. Tommy Perkins. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Tommy is a GP partner. He's the co-founder of Medics Money and he's host of the Medics Money podcast. So an old hand at podcasting, right? 
I hope so, but I do feel a bit of pressure today because you've been on our podcast a few times and you always deliver such wonderful insights to our audience. So I do feel a bit of pressure today. And I've also got the builders in the background, but hopefully they're going to be nice for the duration of this. So we might hear a little bit of banging, but hopefully not too much. And yes, so Tommy, I will be keeping a tally of insights per minute. All right. So I want to hit at least three. I do feel the pressure. (laughs) Well, listen, it's really good to have you on because we are going to talk about a bit about the psychology of money. And I think this is a really, really important topic for our listeners, because the work that I do is all around inviting people to make a deliberate choice about how they'll work, how they'll live, so that they can be happy in life and work. And a lot of people feel really quite trapped at the moment. And so we get a lot of questioning back saying, yeah, but I can't just do that. I can't just do that because I have to have this sort of job. I have to achieve this particular income because of the commitments they have, the financial commitments they have. And so often finances are one of the huge blockers in people being able to make some of the changes that they feel that they need to make in order to thrive in in work and life. I mean, is that something that you've encountered with the people that you talk to as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I've encountered myself. I suppose people don't come to you and say, Rachel, you know, I'm on the edge of burnout. I just need to do a bit more work. Yeah. Most most doctors and professionals that I come across are working insanely long hours. And as you say, they, they want to cut back down, but they don't know how. And that is the economic reality of life. You know, if you're going to cut down work, you are going to possibly earn less money. But we'll talk about that. But yeah, I think on our podcast, we talk about more technical aspects of actually how to do things. But we rarely talk about the psychology of those decisions. And you know, how our own experiences shape the decisions that we make in life, you know, and in finances is something that I think is really underrated and underreported. And I've been looking, you know, I've observed this many, many times in myself and also other people that sometimes they make very, you know, unusual decisions with their finances. And you're trying to understand why. And back in 2006, a couple of American economists looked at something called the 50 Years Survey of Consumer Finances, which is basically a look at what Americans do with their money. And in theory, you know, money should be money. Most money decisions should be about the numbers. You know, does it make financial sense? But that is not what they found, because they they found that what people do with their money is actually heavily anchored to experiences that they've had and especially experiences early in their adult life. So, for example, if you grew up when the stock market was booming, then you invested more of your money in the stock market in later life. And conversely, if you lived through the Great Depression in America in the late 20s, you know, a terrible, terrible time, an actual depression, not a recession, it, it didn't really matter to you that by the 1970s, the stock market was absolutely booming. Those early experiences when you were in your early 20s made you forever skeptical of the stock market. And you, you, even though you looked at the numbers and saw that it was booming, you wouldn't invest because of those early experiences. And then conversely, if you were in your 20s during the 1980s and 1990s, when the American stock market was incredibly strong, you were more likely to invest in stocks, even though during 2000 to 2013, the American stock market was essentially 
didn't do anything. It's called the lost decade. But those early life experiences, you know, shaped your decisions. And essentially the conclusion was that, you know, the most important factor that determines what a person does with their money is the set of experiences that they've lived through, especially in their early formative years. And then that got me kind of thinking about things that I'd done or continue to do based on experiences that I had when I was younger. I'm quite surprised, actually, Tommy. I, I would have thought that the decisions you made about your finances are based on when you were a child and when you were growing up. Because when I, whenever I listen to podcasts with sort of entrepreneurs about, you know, how I built this company, how I did that company, they all say, oh, I had absolutely no money when I was a kid. We literally were starving hungry. We didn't know where our clothes were coming from. Therefore, I knew I had to build this business to make all this money. And it seems like the, the really young experiences really, really shape people. But you're saying actually it's the, the young adult ones as well, right? Yeah. And maybe like, this is what I thought about it is when maybe when you're a kid, you know, like 10 years old or something, you're not aware of your struggles, shall we say. And it's only when you're sort of 15, 20, that you sort of suddenly start to realize and you're exposed to a different point of view that you're, you're aware of that. And this is something that definitely happened to me because, you know, I just grew up in a, what I would say a normal working class family, which is <laughs> in medicine, that makes you a bit of an outlier, but just a normal family, you know, we, we weren't like hard up or anything, but, you know, to give you an example, if like I came home from school uh, and which was just a normal, fairly rough state school and said, we got a school trip next week. I need seven pounds. My brother came home and he'd like ripped a knee out of his uh, trousers. And my brother, other brother came home. And so I got a hole in my shoe. My mum would be like, right, I'm going to go do some extra work this weekend to pay for the school trip. We're going to iron on one of those cool. I don't know if they still have them. They're quite cool little patches that you iron on and it kind of like seals over the hole in the trousers and then, you know, fix the shoes. And, you know, we weren't struggling, but then when I got to university, I kind of sort of found a whole new world of, and then you kind of look back and think, oh yeah, it was quite actually quite tough if you think about it. And this actually kind of impacted like one of my major money traumas, shall we say. And that is, you know, I know that I have a weakness in this area and I know that I constantly make irrational decisions around debt but that is because of my own experiences of debt because as I said I, I grew up working class went to med school which was hideously expensive and I graduated with 85,000 pounds worth of debt and these days unfortunately that's not an outlier but back then nobody had that amount of debt and unfortunately although some of my debt was on student loan some was on a bank loan and even worse, some was on a credit card. And probably the worst debt of all was to my mum because I owed her five grand. And five grand was a tremendous amount of money to her. And so when I graduated, this is going to sound wonderfully naive, but I didn't really know what the starting salary was for a doctor. But all I did know is that, I say, I went to a normal state school, which was pretty rough. And we went when we moved to secondary school, one of my friend's was her doctor her dad was a doctor and the school was super rough she got parachuted out to private school and never saw her again and I thought wow doctors must be really rich like I never didn't know anyone who went to private school and we didn't know any doctors so when I got my first sort of idea of what the salary was then I looked at my debt and worked out what I needed to repay per month I was just in a blind panic because I was just looking at this 85 grand 
you know, and I was in a total panic. And, and basically right there is where Medic's Money started because I had no financial education throughout med school, didn't get anything from, you know, my family in terms of education. And so I just sort of educated myself about finances. And eventually I kind of worked out that there's good debt and there's bad debt. And so broadly, I would define good debt as low interest rate debt that is used to buy an asset that appreciates. And so your mortgage would be an example of this. Okay. And in general, good debt, you know, you can repay slowly in general. And none of this is, of course, financial advice. We have to say that. And then there's bad debt. Okay. And bad debt is high interest rate debt that is historically used to purchase an asset that depreciates. So a store card, which you use to buy clothes, which are going to just depreciate, get less, worth less over time. Most forms of car finance, I would classify as bad debt. And bad debt needs to be repaid as an absolute you know, urgent priority. So going back to my own scenario, I looked at my debts. I worked out that my credit card debt was bad debt. So I paid that off first. Then this is where the psychology comes in, because the next logical thing would have been to pay down the bank loan, which it wasn't terrible debt, actually, but it wasn't great. But like I said, I owe my mum five grand and that, the interest rate on that debt was 0%. But I, I know that it was a lot of money to her. So I paid down that debt. And then eventually, after about 10 years, I'd paid down the whole lot. And I just remember that first day when I was like debt free and I wasn't looking at the deductions coming out of my account. And I felt amazing. And then for about 18 months, I was completely debt free and it just felt amazing. And then somebody, you know, I'm a GP partner. So somebody offered me a GP partnership, you know, which is something that I was definitely interested in. But I had to buy in to the practice and partners will know about this. But for those that don't, generally, you have to buy in to the business, you know, so that could be a six figure amount to buy into the building and the current account. And I was just really scared, even though I really wanted to be a partner and it was a great practice. I just didn't want to do it. And I looked at the numbers, you know, and the numbers look great. You know, uh, it, it was a, a great investment by numbers. But those early experiences and that panic that I felt when I first graduated as a doctor, you know, I just didn't I just didn't want to do it. And I was so close to turning that opportunity down. And thankfully, a combination of looking at the numbers and just thinking about it more deeply. Uh, and I did decide to take the partnership. And that was five years ago. And I've never, ever regretted it. But that was just an example where I nearly made a very, very silly decision based on my early experiences with debt. And, you know, I think lots of your listeners might be able to relate to that. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, definitely. I think the listeners, I'm sure, have an absolute range of financial stuff going on from, from debt, from university, from debt, from personal stuff, from debt from, I guess, relationship breakdown but also I think a lot of the listeners are sort of in the middle of their careers and it's this feeling of of financial commitment that they have so they might have children at private school which is a freaking huge huge bill when you actually add what you've actually got to earn before tax to pay the private school bill and you know when it comes to your family you know you don't mind going, I don't mind not having that lovely pair of shoes or that new jacket or that amazing car. But when it comes to what feels like letting your family down, then that's another thing. And so people feel trapped in the the jobs that they maybe don't want, or they maybe want to drop a session or two or not to do quite as much out of hours. But they feel that they're not 
able to do that. But I do think there's also another side of things that we do get ourselves into financial debt through just maybe some emotional decisions around money. Like, I really deserve that amazingly wonderful car because I've worked so hard. And and I know that money isn't just a transaction of time, which which essentially that's all money is, isn't it? It's a payment for the, the time. It's something you exchange for time. But there are a lot of emotions attached to it as well, particularly when we're talking about possessions or or houses or where you live or where you'll send your children to school or where you go on holiday. I mean, do you find that that is a huge factor in, in people's choices as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think everybody has their own wants, desires and expectations. And that kind of leads me neatly on to the next thing I was going to talk about, which is spend less or earn more or how to avoid lifestyle creep. And so, you know, lifestyle creep is basically you're earning a decent wage, you know, maybe you've reaching the sort of top of your career pay scale and you've had quite a few pay rises since in the last 10 years. And yet you don't feel any wealthier. Okay. And at the end of the month, your bank account is still empty and you still have little in the way of savings and investments. And you don't have what's called an emergency fund, which is a sort of pot of money, broadly three to six months of your outgoings saved up in case of emergencies. And you and you might start to feel really guilty or annoyed because you're like, where is that money going? Okay. And so, you know, let's let's think about it in those terms. If you if that is you, should you spend less or earn more? Okay. So I said I wasn't going to talk too much about numbers today, but I am going to throw some numbers in here because I think it's relevant and it might help some of your listeners to understand what what if they are in that position, what they can do about it. So let's say you are a consultant, okay, and you are earning a hundred thousand pounds, okay. That is a good amount of salary. Nobody's saying it's not, okay. And you want somebody to wash your car, okay? So should you do a waiting list initiative for £100 an hour or should you wash your own car? Which would make more financial sense? So if we look at the numbers, let's say the car wash costs £20 for 20 minutes, okay? So the car wash will cost you £1 per minute to pay somebody to wash your car. Not a lot of money. Okay, and you're the consultant and you go to do a waiting list initiative and you get £100 an hour. Okay, the problem you've got is that that gap between 100 and 125,000 of income is subject to what's called a marginal rate. And we have a whole podcast on marginal rates, so I don't want to go into the details. But essentially, you get your £100, you take off £40 for income tax. Because it's the marginal rate, you take off another £20 for your income tax, the loss of your personal allowance. You take off national insurance at £2, and who knows what that's going to change to at the moment with all the turmoil and U-turns that are going on, but at the moment, at the time of recording, national insurance £2. Okay, so that gives you a take-home pay from that £100 of actually £38 an hour. Okay, so that's still a good amount, but remember, the car wash costs £1 a minute, and your take-home pay, £38 per hour, is only 63p per minute. So it makes more financial sense for you to stay at home and wash your car than it does to go and do a waiting list initiative. And actually, the £38 out of 100 that you get is actually possibly a best case scenario, because if 
you have a plan two student loan, which lots and lots and lots of consultants do now. And thankfully, I did had a plan one student loan. You probably still going to lose another 9% of that as well. And if that work is pensionable, you lose another 12.5%. So that actually, that £100 an hour could actually go down to less than £17 per hour in your pocket. And so at that point, you've got a choice. If you hate washing your car and you love going to work, then fine, go to work and just accept that it doesn't make financial sense. But if you're feeling hard, working harder and harder and you're not feeling any richer and you don't want to do any more work, unfortunately, it's time to look at your spending. And budget is probably the most boring word in personal finance, but you do need a budget. And it's really, really simple, really, because if you save £100, so you trim £100 off of your expenses, that will be £100 in your pocket. You will feel £100 richer. But I've just demonstrated to you that if you earn £100, you might get £38 or less. So save £100, it's £100 in your pocket. Go to work for £100, it's £38 or less in your pocket. And I don't know what you think about that, Rachel, because there's definitely a balance here between like doing everything, but then also working less. What do you think? I think it's a really difficult balance. But I mean, Tommy, when you put it like that, it's pretty it's pretty obvious that you're going to stay home because what you're not featuring in is how much it costs you to drive to work, to park, to do that thing. You're factoring time away from your family as well, you know, whereas actually you could wash your car with your kids or, or more to the point, give one of them a fiver to wash the car. They think they're getting pocket money, better pocket money. They love you for it. Your car might not be that clean, but uh, yeah. It's really interesting, this, and I know we've talked about this before, and it has really made me think, yeah, that actually saving money is is better than earning more. It's funny, my son the other day, he's always like, can we get a takeaway, mum? And I thought, well, you know, for the three of you, for a takeaway, they always like to get these posh burgers. That's like 45 quid just for, just for an evening, and that actually represents earning of what, I can't do my math, 60 or 70 quid, right? So... An hour's, an hour's worth of work just for a takeaway. We had some burgers in the freezer. So I said, no, actually, no, you make, you make your own burgers. But I think we don't like feeling that we are being restricted in our spending, particularly when we feel we are working so, so hard. You think, well, when, then why, why shouldn't I have nice things? Why shouldn't I be able to you know, spend my money? Surely one of the perks of working this hard is to feel like I can have a few luxuries. But actually, what you're saying is you're going to feel a lot freer in terms of not feeling trapped into the work if you can maybe ditch some of that spend and save it. And then the time that you get back will probably be worth more to you than having that nice pair of shoes. Well, this is, again, something that you know, digging myself out of that 85 grand debt hole, basically, I just did it by, you know, being smart about getting educated with finances, making the right decisions, but also being ridiculously frugal. And I used to frame things, if I wanted to buy something, I would frame it in terms of how many hours doing something that I hated. So I don't know about you, but after the night shift, when you do the post take ward round, and you just want to go to bed, you're basically asleep, you've been up all night. And they're going on and on and on about the patients. And it's, you know, clocking around towards 10 a.m. And you just want to go to bed. Capture that feeling and then work out how many hours of that that you would have to do to buy the thing that you want to buy. 
And, and when you frame it like that, trust me, it's an amazing way to save a ton of money. And, and if you're struggling to save money, just think about it in that, those terms. Think about something that you hate doing, like a post-take ward round after nights. Work out how much you actually get. Not, not what the headline rate, if it's £20 an hour, run it backwards. Run the numbers backwards. It's not difficult to do. And then think about it in those terms. And don't overdo it because I've definitely overdone it. And, you know, just being honest, my financial situation has changed dramatically since I left med school because I've worked incredibly hard and made the right financial decisions. And probably I haven't quite adapted to that yet. And my frugalness is still there in the background. And if you are struggling to save, there's a really nice little, again, this is a psychological trick that can help you to save money. And that's something called pay yourself first. I don't know if you've heard about that, Rachel. I have. I've heard about it. People in the group I was in were absolutely raving at about it. I never quite understood what it was, though. Yeah, ho hopefully I can explain it because it is reasonably straightforward. So let's say, you know, you have a debt and you need to pay £200 per month off of that debt. OK, so what you would do is your salary would come into your separate bank account. OK, one that you don't often touch. And from that bank account, automatically, the £200 would be paid out to cover the debt. OK, and then after that, the rest of the money would go into your spending account, your current account, and that would be your money for the month. And the reason that I like that is twofold, really. One, once you get into that habit, you just don't even notice the loss of that £200 because you learn to live with less. You know, you look at your bank account, you go, oh, this is what I've got in my bank account for the month. You know, thanks very much. You don't even see that £200 being filtered off because you've paid yourself first. And so that basically is how I paid down my debts. But the great thing about pay yourself first is it carries on working going forward. Because once you've paid down all your debts, you might consider investing. Okay. So I invest an amount every month automatically, and it comes off my wages automatically. I never see it. And so I just get used to living on less. And then I'm automatically investing every month. And lots of personal finance is just about repeating good habits for 20 or 30 years, because of essentially com something called compound interest, which we, we might talk about in a bit. But yeah, pay yourself first. I just love it. It just works. It just works so well because you never really notice that the money's not there. And, and the other way that some people do it is to set a budget. But I don't do well with budgets. You know, I don't do well with dieting because I just get miserable that I can't eat what I want. And I don't do well with budgeting because I feel like I'm consciously having to watch everything. But if I've got that amount in my account and I know it's got to last me a month and all my other debts or investments are taken care of, it just works quite well for me. So it's a, quite a neat little psychological trick to just save up a ton of money, basically. Pay yourself first. I really like that. And you've mentioned also the emergency stash as well. So that I, I know a lot of people are so worried about, you know, well, what if I do have to go off sickness stress or, or do, do reduce? But if you've thought about it before and built up that that buffer I, I really like the idea of buffers I've talked about buffers before I think but not just not just financial buffers but time buffers you know why why do I always leave for that appointment 10 minutes away with nine minutes to spare you know why wouldn't I leave with 15 minutes to spare so I'm not stressed etc etc same with money right what, what what do you recommend having as that as that emergency buffer 
Yeah, so I think it's a really good point. So that this would come under the sort of umbrella of protection, really, or mm. you know, protecting yourself from disaster. Because you know, you've probably worked incredibly hard to get where you are in your chosen profession, whether that be a doctor, or a manager, or professional, or all the other types of people that listen to your amazing podcast. And you need to protect that position, okay? And a lot of personal finance is about minimizing what I would call the downside risk, you know, that, that if the worst happened, are you protected? And so step number one there is, as you said, an emergency fund. An emergency fund is really simple. It's just a, a pot of money which you keep aside. You know, generally, people sort of say three to six months. So when I was a locum GP, my work pattern was erratic. I had a young family. So I had six months saved up, okay? Now that I'm a partner, work pattern's still erratic, but income more stable and, you know, I'm hopefully not going to get fired or might lose my contract tomorrow like you could as a locum. So I just have three months of emergency funds saved up. And it's just a, a fund that you have for exactly the scenario that you just mentioned. And a lot of doctors say to me, well, you know, I could get a high interest, I could get a low cost credit card if I needed it, Okay. And that is actually a real web flag for me because taking on bad debts like a credit card at the very moment that you earnings stop because you're off work sick is just an absolute recipe for disaster. And so that's like the basics. And then at a slightly more advanced level, you've got to think about if I get ill, how will I pay my bills? And there's ways you can do that with something called income protection insurance, which essentially pays you an income if you were to get sick and not be able to work and especially important for self-employed GPs and GP partners because often we don't get any sick pay at all like check your own contract but in general you've got critical illness which pays out a, a sum if you get one of a list of predefined critical illnesses and of course if you die there's something called life insurance which would pay out then so that's a kind of whirlwind summary of how to protect yourself against disaster but I think it's a really good point and the emergency fund is the basics of that and if you don't have an emergency fund okay right now just work out what you need three months of your outgoings set up a direct debit into a separate account using pay yourself first and I guarantee you, you'll just learn to live on that money and then once you've saved up the emergency fund divert that extra money that you no longer need to paying down bad debt like credit cards and store cards and if you don't have any of those think about investing mm. That's such good advice because I think sometimes the stress that people feel is because what if, what if, what if? And so they delay, particularly if they're really, really stressed and they know they need some time off work, they just delay it because they think, oh, I can't possibly afford this. If they've got that emergency fund, might encourage them to take the time off that they need earlier or maybe drop a session or two. And they could do that maybe for six months and go to their employers or their partnership and go, you know what, literally, unless I have this extra day for six months, I'm going to burn out. That will probably prevent a whole heap of pain. And then you get to just test it. Then you've got that buffer. So I think that's absolutely brilliant, brilliant advice. And I think people that think, well, I'm, I'm not going to burn out. That's fine. Well, fine. OK, you might not think you're going to burn out. That's great. But what if you in a car accident you break your leg or something like that you know these these dreadful things do just happen to us out of the blue you can't predict it so really important that that's really helpful and and Tommy I'm just coming to this realization that I always say to people pay for ways to get back your time so for me having a cleaner is just a no-brainer because my time off is is so so precious and also I, I love the fact that 
you know, I can support my cleaner as well and, and her family and she's, she's wonderful. But I always thought, okay, so you work so that you can then pay to have experience and get some of your time back because we are time poor, cash rich. But actually, you've given me a completely different mindset is that if you're time poor, then rather than working extra, <laughs> which actually makes no sense, does it? Extra to get the money to get people to do the stuff you don't want to do. Actually, spend less to get the money. And the way you spend less is not by scrimping on those time-saving things, like maybe having a cleaner and stuff, because that doesn't add to your quality of life. But I think it's get less stuff, right? Get less stuff. We've all got too much stuff. And maybe go on less expensive holidays. I think stuff and holidays are the things, well, when I look at our spending, it seems to be stuff and holidays. I don't know if that's, that's normal or that's what you see with people. Yeah, definitely. And by the way, I think the truth lies somewhere between my point of view and your point of view, because I've already said, you know, being completely honest, I've definitely overdone it and I haven't really adapted to my situation. But that that is what worked for me when I was getting out of that financial hole. But I think, you know, your point is is a really good one about buying back your time by getting a cleaner, etc. And yeah, it might make no financial sense to get a cleaner. But you know, if that, if you can afford it and you're aware of what the cost is and you know what the cost is and you've made that conscious decision, I guess like a lot of personal finance is a bit like when we consent our patients, we just want to make them make an informed decision. So get all the info. And sometimes in personal finances, unfortunately, the information is numbers, but they're not hard to work out. Take all that and then, you know, talk about it with your family and make a informed choice. And every, every one of us will make a different informed choice, you know, based on that. And in terms of like, you know, breaking it down, I like to keep things really simple. So I just break it down into discretionary spending uh, and non-discretionary. Okay, so get your non-discretionary. That'd be like your mortgage, your energy bills, you know, your broadband bills. Okay, I hate paying too much money for those because, you know, your boiler doesn't know whether it's burning the most expensive gas on the market or the cheapest. Okay, it all burns the same. So I always, you know, Get shop around, set a reminder in your phone for when your deal expires so you don't roll over onto the deal where they just start punishing you for your loyalty. And if you can just chase down your non-discretionary bills, that's great. And then get into your discretionary stuff. And that's where it becomes more of a choice because you think, okay, well, that holiday is going to cost us that. I might have to work that many hours for it. But, you know, what what did we get out of it as a family and, and what was the, the value of it? And so the non-discretionary stuff is pretty easy the discretionary stuff it's harder I think it is harder but I'm just wondering if some of the discretionary stuff we make the wrong decisions about or no hang on there's no such thing as wrong decision but I think we make perhaps slightly unwise decisions because we get stuff based on comparison with other people you know particularly I think when it comes to things like cars perhaps when it comes to schools. I mean, I think schools is quite an interesting one because I think that is discretionary at the point where you choose where your children are going to go. And I think many people knee-jerk, perhaps straight into paying for education and you tie yourself into years and years and years and years and years of school fees, which are a huge pressure, aren't they? I think you're right. The expectations that people have obviously affect their financial decisions and I think 
you know, that's where I feel incredibly lucky because there was basically zero expectations on me. And the person who puts the most expectations on me is myself. And I've got those expectations under control. And I'm, I'm really happy. And yeah, I, I do drive a 17 year old van, you know, but I'm, I'm happy with that choice. And I get to pick my kids up, you know, from school and drop them off two days a week. I took my daughter to gym yesterday in, at five o'clock in the evening. And that's a choice that I've made. And I'm not saying it's the right choice. It's just a choice. And that's a great thing. If you're making informed choices, you know, I think that's the key to feeling happier. But if you are trapped in that kind of position, you've got to do something about it. What are the warning signs for people that they are making an, an unwise choice about some of these things? You know, if you're looking at a car and think, well, I really, you know, I'd really like to have that one. How do you know? whether you're actually really making a good, sound financial decision or whether you're just being swayed by your emotions and comparison with other people and things like that. What would be the warning signs? Yeah, it's the wrong person to ask about cars because I'm really not into them at all. But I think... What would work for you? Surfboards? Surfboards, yeah, surfboards. Okay, that's basically my weakness. I know a lot of people do, but I've never had a car on finance. And some people say, oh, I've got a great deal on my car on finance. And I look at the numbers in detail. And yeah, you might have got an okay deal based on buying a brand new car at full retail price. But actually, if you look at, say you're going to spend £200 a year, a month, sorry, okay, on a car. And you're going to do that for 30 years because most of the time you never own these cars. You're just leasing them. Okay, you're renting them. So if you'd instead put that £200 a month for 30 years, you would have spent £72,000 on a car that essentially you wouldn't own after 30 years, okay? So that's bad, all right, in my opinion. But if you want to spend £72,000 to drive a car for 30 years and not own it at the end, that's fine. If you took that £72,000 and invested it in something that returns 6%, okay, over those 30 years, you would turn that £72,000 into £202,000. And this is where you come into something called opportunity cost, which is basically a way of saying, if I didn't do that thing, buy a car, a brand new car on finance, what could I do with the money instead? And how would that, you know, improve my life? And so that is an example of opportunity cost. Do you want to pay £202,000 over the next 30 years to drive a car that you don't own? Or could you buy a three to five-year-old car, run it until it's 10 years old, generally very reliable. I'm not advocating a 17-year-old car, but I've just got a bit slack with my car buying habits recently. But yeah, I think that's the way to think about it. That's interesting because even if you took maybe half of that £72,000, 35, and bought, you know, one car for £10,000, you know, and then, (laughs) yeah, run that for a bit and then bought another one, you could invest the rest and you would still own that car. And over you know, 30 years of spending, you know, 30, 40 grand on the car, you probably get some pretty decent cars, right? I think as well, something that we haven't talked about is, you know, having the financial safety net. And we did talk about it a bit earlier in having a, an emergency fund and stuff. And this is something that I, I know we didn't have as a family when, when I was growing up. And it's something that I've been really conscious to work hard on. So I know that if I die right now, then my family will be very well protected. You know, I've got all of the insurances necessary and they will be able to continue that lifestyle. The feeling of having a financial safety net is just, you know, 
invaluable to me and especially with having a young family well Tommy we've gone through some really helpful stuff I love the pay yourself first idea and then then invest that the having an emergency fund so you don't have that acute pressure of I have to keep carrying on even if I'm unwell the looking at actually saving money rather than working more to get more money and then looking at the difference between your discretionary and your non-discretionary stuff what would you say to someone who felt really, really trapped and felt that they couldn't work happier because their financial commitments, probably family, probably home, probably all sorts of things, meant that they absolutely had to maintain a certain income? You know, what would, you, what would be the very first thing that you would suggest to them? Yeah, so I think in all of this, I've kind of perhaps well I've assumed that your listeners are you know not on the poverty line and they are earning an okay amount of money it's just not delivering them the lifestyle that they wanted but I think it's important to acknowledge with the current financial pressures that you know there are going to be lots of people where they are going to be making the choice between heating and eating okay so I mean, that's terrible, but this, what I'm about to say is not really for them. It's for people that are, as I say, earning an okay amount of money, but do feel trapped as you described. And I think one really, really simple thing to do is, of course, firstly, acknowledge that you've got the problem. And then secondly, just think, okay, do I have capacity to do more work and run the numbers, like I said? And if you don't have capacity to do more work, you are going to have to cut something out. So I like to do this as a family, okay? Because if one person is just leading a budget slashing, cost-cutting exercise, it can become a bit resentful. So when we do this as a family, we all sit down as a family. We go through our the last three months of our bank statements and we just look at where our money is going. And then we think, okay, what do we not need off of that list? What could we cut out? And like I said, every time you cut something out, every time you save £100 of spending, it's £100 in your pocket. It's not rocket science. So... Yeah, just get your bank statements out for the last three months with your partner or your family or whatever and say, look, guys, you know, I need to work less. So we're going to have to cut some stuff out. What can we cut out? And I think you'll be amazed at the amount of things that are just on there, which you don't need, you don't want and are not more important than your own mental health, which is essentially what you're saying here, isn't it? Oh, totally. And I think I would just put a bit of a health warning around that question. Do I have the capacity to do more work? So I think when people ask themselves that, they often ask themselves, do I have the time to do more work? And probably the answer is, well, yeah, you could always fill your entire weekend up with work and the evenings up with work. If, if you do have that time where maybe one evening you go and play squash or something like that. But that is not what capacity means. I would say the mental capacity, the mental energy to, to, to do that. And I love that suggestion of sitting down with your kids and your family and looking at it together, because I think... One quite toxic mindset we have, particularly at the moment, is that we have to give our kids everything that they want. And certainly, you know, I grew up in the 1980s. My dad was a GP, you know, and well, we went out for dinner once a year. I think it was once a year. We really did. And then it was to a little chef. <laughs> it was diabolical. We had a black and white TV for a long time, followed by one colour TV. You know, we had very little and I know the 1980s were completely different beasts but nowadays my kids moan if they don't have the latest iPhone 
they, they moan if my phone's a little bit low on the battery or they, you know they seem to want absolutely everything at the drop of a hat knew this knew that new trainers to go on every single trip to be able to go out in the school holidays and have lunch in town every single day to be able to just get Uber's places, all those sorts of things that we wouldn't even considered, even when we were at university. And one of my children quite often says, well, why can't I have a higher allowance? It's not fair. You know, you can afford it. And our answer to him is, oh, we can, yes, of course we can afford it, darling. But we, that's not the reason why your allowance is at a certain amount. And then so, you know, the oldest one has gone and got herself a job. And that's actually been really good for her to have a bit of experience of real life, the real world, all those sorts of things. So I think this idea that we're depriving our children if we are not meeting their every want with the latest iPhone or, or, or clothes or meals out, whatever, actually, we need to get ourselves out of that mindset. It's actually quite good for them to have to budget, to have to save, to have to experience what lots of people, let's face it, can't eat out all the time. Is that making sense? Yeah, definitely. And it's something that we didn't really talk about today, but it's something that I've been working on quite hard with my kids is teaching them about money. So they're a bit younger than yours. My eldest is eight and then six and two. And yeah, I think my main strategy has been to try to teach them the value of money. So they like to buy these like magazines with like Lego or something on the front. They're about five pounds. And so I don't give them an allowance, but I say, okay, you want to buy the magazine, go wash my car, which definitely isn't, I'm not paying someone to wash. And as you say, they do a terrible job on it. But the, the point is they're learning the, the value of money. So that's one thing that I try to instill upon them, you know, that, okay, you want to buy that thing. Well, here's how much work you've got to go to do it. And then, of course, there's a whole thing around, around giving your money and being generous to others and charitable giving, I think, which perhaps something for another episode, because we know that giving is one of the ways to well-being. And I think that's a really important part of people's financial management as well, is to every month do a regular giving to charity. I know there's lots of organisations that are, are talking about, you know, 10% of your income, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in, in today's world, we really need to be giving. You know, we are high earners. We need to be giving our money away and modeling that to the kids and showing how you do that. So anyway, that's my bit of a soapbox about that. <laughs> but Tommy, we've talked for a long time. Any, any final thoughts about any of this? No, I think, you know, if you are struggling and you are earning an, an okay amount, attack the problem as a family. And then if everybody understands the problem and understands why cutbacks need to be made, then everyone's going to be on board with it. And at the end of the day, personal finance is incredibly simple. You simply spend less than you earn, invest the difference to grow your wealth over time and protect your most valuable asset, which is you using those insurances we talked about. So spend less than you earn, invest the difference, protect yourself, job done. Brilliant, brilliant. And if, if people are wondering how they do that, you know, getting into the technicalities of investment and stuff like that, you guys have got a wealth of information, haven't you, on your Medics Money site? Yeah, we do. So we have obviously our podcast, which is is pretty popular. So you can find that just by searching Medics Money Podcast. 
We've got over 100 episodes now, and so we've made an ebook which just guides you through the basics. So that is at medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash ebook, completely free to download, and it can signpost you to the most valuable episodes, and you don't have to listen to all 100. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Tommy. We're going to have to get you back again because there's so much more to explore in all of this. But we'll put all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. Will you, will you come back again? Definitely. We're so grateful for having your expertise on our partnership course. And so anything we can do to reciprocate the amazing value that you always offer to our listeners, it was such a pleasure. And the builders stay pretty quiet, which is amazing. I have just realized that I'm recording on the completely the wrong microphone. It's not picking up my, my lovely big podcast mic, but hopefully the sound won't have been too bad. But thanks for being here, Tommy. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.